second mouse ladies and gentlemen welcome to catch me if you can week here on we read the book i'm adam heap and i'm lois mitchell and we're friendless again yeah we don't have any friends but we do have some excellent podcast material to bring your way we do uh, <laughs> didn't anyone tell you lois? It was <laughs> oh on the goodness agenda. we're going to start off with our question of the week which this week is what a highly qualified job would you bullshit your way into i feel like i should say astronaut or something but um I think actually I would probably like want to be like stage manager on like a Broadway show or something. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's really good. I think I'd go film director. Oh, no, no. You know what? I'm going to change my answer. Uh, I'd be a WWE like manager. Right. So I can be like on TV and everything. Like as a, like one of the managers of the wrestlers, not like backstage manager or anything. Yeah. But I think that'd be uh, that'd be excellent fun, just like being around all the wrestlers and the soap opera drama. And I th- don't think you actually have to be all that good to do it anyway. So I think I could confidently sneak my way in there. I was gonna say like a film director or something, but then I thought like that's you could, the kind you could of still thing... make bad films. Yeah, exactly. That's the kind of thing where your work will show show up as bad. Yeah. Uh, so we're talking Catch Me If You Can this week, which uh, is the story of a very famous con man, possibly the world's most famous con man, uh, Frank Abagnale Jr. Uh, and so we're going to take our vote on the book or the film in which we preferred. Uh, we're looking at the 1980 semi-autobiography by Frank Abagnale Jr. and Stan Redding, and the 2002 Spielberg film starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. What did you like, Lois? It's kind of a tough one for me. I think the film's amazing, but I did really enjoy the book and I kind of wasn't expecting to, so I think I'm going to say book. Okay, cool. Uh, I am also voting for the book. Uh, I think maybe I just kind of, because they have very different tones, I think is perhaps the biggest difference. I mean, one is designed to entertain and one is designed to recap. Yeah. You know, you know. I want to say more accurate manner, but I'm not sure. that It's it's very difficult to tell and not surprising being half written by a con man, uh, what's real, what's not, what's embellished and what's not. Um, but I do, I think the combination of the two of them, and I don't know who's responsible for exactly what words, but the the writing itself is really like enticing in the book. It's very easy to read. It's very slick. It almost perfectly like captures the the tone of the stories they're telling. So I think I'm putting for the book. Yeah, the um the book really draws you into the 60s mm. um, with the language that's used and... And again, they've got big differences in what they're trying to accomplish. Like you can spend more, much more time in the book detailing, you know, the ins and outs of every little part of the check, and and tell the reader this is, you know, how I did this, and I used this pair of scissors, and and these exact little tiny details, which are fascinating to learn, but you don't have time or you know energy, and it's not interesting to listen to a character talk about that in a film, where you need to like show as well. Yeah. Yeah, they're trying to accomplish different things. And they both succeed, I think. Like, this isn't to say I didn't enjoy the movie, but I just think I preferred the end result of the book. Yeah, same. Is it a good adaptation? It certainly isn't really the story of Frank Abagnale Jr., the movie, because even things they didn't have to change, like the reason his father and mother split up, they changed. So, yeah, I think I'm going to say no. Okay, interesting. Yeah. 
I'm also a little torn and, and kind of wavering one way and another. I'm not sure if the only way you could get a good adaptation is if you did a documentary. No, I you, think you there are. I, mean? like, I think there are very faithful biopics. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, oh, it's really hard. I, I'm slightly leaning towards no, but it's not a neither is a bad adaptation. I don't think it's just kind of neither here nor there. It's a good adaptation of the story of his cons. It's a bad adaptation of the story of his life. Yes, I would say. Yep, that's an excellent way of putting it. Uh, well, for those of you who haven't uh, had the chance to enjoy the story of Catch Me If You Can, allow me to spell it out for you in a plot summary. So, uh, Catch Me If You Can tells the story of Frank Abagnale Jr., a former con artist who, by the age of 21, had forged over $2.5 million in bad checks, flown over a million miles, passing himself off as a Pan Am pilot, and also impersonated a university professor, an attorney, and a doctor, and then proceeded to escape prison twice. Once on an airplane. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, he's pretty cool. <laughs> it's just that, like, I was, I could not stop reading this book. Like, it was just yeah. fascinating. You're like, there is no way anyone could have done this. Because in today, maybe today in a digital age where there's so many checks and balances against this sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it happens, but at, at, at the edges of areas of technology we're still exploring. But back in the 60s when, you know, when checks weren't as refined or... or or ironically, like, made as foolproof as they are by Frank Abagnale Jr. Yeah. Uh, who has a large part to play in that. Um, it's, it's just mind-boggling that any of this occurred at all and that he got as far as he did, as scot-free as he did for so long. Yeah. Before he was, like, in his 20s. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the cast. Uh, Leo DiCaprio as Frank Abagnale Jr. What do you think? Um, I think he's always good. So this coming out in 2002... Is a few years after his big starring role in Titanic, so the world knows Leo DiCaprio by this point. I think they do a good job of making him seem really young, though I know he was pretty young at this point, yeah. but not 16. He, no, he wouldn't have been too far in his late 20s, I imagine, yeah. maybe even then. And I think he is very charismatic, so he, he really um, fit the role of this con man because um, obviously a con man has to be super charismatic to get away with what they're getting away with. He does a great job. I just don't think that that character reflects the real person from the book. No. So, so he's doing what he's asked to in the script. Yeah. But the script isn't asking him to do what's in the book. Yeah. So it's neither here nor there, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's it's. It's not like when you see Daniel Day Lewis play Lincoln in Lincoln, and then when you read about like how Lincoln was and stuff, you go, well, yeah, he does kind of seem to embody how Lincoln is written down in first-hand yeah. accounts and that kind of thing. I mean, yeah, for my part, I enjoyed him as an actor. I, th I think I pretty much hit the same beats as you on this one. I um, he, he suits the role of a con man, of a young con man. It's interesting that they brought him in to do, like, those parts where he was super young, like where he was, like, supposed to have only been, like, 13 and stuff, and he's, you still, like, somewhat believe it. Yeah. <laughs> he just looks so baby-faced. Yeah, he really does. They, they managed to dress him up in, I don't know, maybe clothes that are not quite fitting him. And somehow make him look a lot younger. I don't yeah. think it's CGI. Movie magic. Yeah. Uh, Tom Hanks uh, on the opposite end as Ca Agent Carl Hanretty. Um, and this is the character from the book of Sean O'Reilly, the FBI agent. Again, I think he did a really good job. This character, even though the name is different, is more in line with the FBI agent in the book, I think. Although there's not a lot to go off of that FBI agent themselves. Like, there's just not a lot of... Yeah. I mean, he spends almost no time talking about anyone who he didn't directly associate with. Yeah. 
but I think like they basically put everyone who he did, everyone from law enforcement and the good guys, quote unquote, who he did have run-ins with, they put that all into this Carl Hanratty character. And, and streamlines um, it for the yeah, purpose of the movie. Yeah, it makes sense for a movie. Um, and why not use Tom Hanks? I mean, he's just a treasure. He na- he nails this. I yeah. love that. From the very first moment you see him where he's this kind of beleaguered, uh, nerdy FBI agent yeah. who's interested in, you know, forgeries and stuff like that and who no one takes seriously. Yeah. And over the he, but he's he's got a wonderful arc himself as the the antagonist. Yeah. This who's is actually a, on the side of good. Yeah, this is a like a wonderfully written movie. Mm. Christopher Walken as Frank Abagnale Senior. Uh again, I think he does a really great job. Yeah. The character's completely different, but Yeah. I find it interesting that Frank Abagnale Jr. himself actually said that this was one of the things he thought was weirdest between, you know, his own obviously he knows his own life. And then there's the book. Is It's funny because there's, there's kind of three aspects. There's what actually happened, what the book says happened, and what the movie says happened. And and even you can't, again, we've already talked about how you kind of can only semi-trust the book as yeah. to what, what was real and what was not. I kind of wonder why you'd make a movie of this person and then change so much about his life. Like, I could understand taking some of the cons out. I could understand taking some of the people out. But to change stuff like in the movie his mother is cheating on his father and in the um, book she leaves because he was successful and now he isn't and there's no money and he has no prospects, which they they kind of put that in the movie, but it's mainly that she's not in love with him anymore. And they also change, like, he's got this massively positive relationship with his, with his dad the whole time. Like, he just sees him as infallible. Yeah, and he keeps checking in with him and... And they um, also admit the part where he his first major con was off his dad. Yeah, off his dad. They also um, kind of try and suggest that he got like the the thing for conning people from his dad because his dad does the thing with the necklace with the shop assistants. Yeah. And then he gets gets him to drive him in that fancy car so he can get the bank to lo- loan him some money. So it's like it's not super dodgy cons. Like it's you know little things, but you. That's a huge change to make from from this person who just went into cons because they were easy and he wanted money. Like, he literally says in the book, like... He wanted money because he liked girls. Yeah, he wanted to date girls. He didn't have enough money to do that, so he started char- overcharging on his mobile credit card um, at the gas stations for things he didn't need for his car like and then and selling them back to the gas station who could then resell them so he'd get cash for them and they'd get to sell the item twice. Which is a genius thing for a 16-year-old to think up. But basically then his dad got the bill for the credit card. To, to change from him just wanting money to him kind of following his dad's lead, that's a huge change to make. Mm. Um, and I felt it, was a weak, it weakened the story a little bit because it was kind of trying to give cause. It was like they were trying to say, well, it wasn't... It was like they were trying to paint Frank Abagnale Jr. as a victim... And that's not what the book does at all. No. He's completely honest about the fact that what he did was bad. And he's like, yep, I was a con artist. I stole from people. Um, he does say things like, you know, he never stole from individuals. He only stole from banks and companies, companies and that kind of thing. Um, he always paid off individuals. Um, and if he had to go into a small store to buy clothes, he always paid with cash and that kind of thing. But what he did was wrong. And he, he admits that in the book. Even when he's kind of 
you know, kind of patting himself on the back for how clever his con was. And then so for the movie to be like, oh, isn't it sad? You know, his parents broke up and he had this bad influence from his father and stuff. It's like, well, none of that's true. Mm. Why why call this catch me if you can, if you're going to add all that stuff in that's not true? Yeah. There's just a couple more uh, names to mention, actress and actor-wise. Uh, Amy Adams as Brenda Strong. She's really good. Yeah, she's cute in this. Yeah. The, the, with braces was like so weird. Yeah, she looks so young. Oh, man. So young. This was. I mean, this so movie was, is 16 years old now. Oh, my God. Don't say that. Uh, and then there's Martin Sheen as Roger Strong, her father. Yeah. He's always nice showing up rocking that uh, that Southern American accent. Yeah. Um, there's, and yeah, there's kind of like little cameos like that all over. Well, yeah. I mean, the other two names I had to, had to mention are Jennifer Garner, who plays a cool girl. Yep. And uh, Elizabeth Banks, who plays a Czech, you know, just a bank girl in one of the earlier scenes. Yeah. And there were other actors I recognised, though wouldn't know their names. But yeah, like seen Josh in... Brolin's in this. Yeah. As, as uh, like one of the guys who's cheating, who uh, Frank's mother is cheating with. There's sort of people all over the place that you kind of recognise. So yeah. it's a really star-studded cast and it's not shy about it. Rockin'. Uh, let's dig into the plot, shall we? Okay. Okay. Uh, the movie actually opens up with, in the, what is in the movie, a flashback or a flash forward rather. To um, his time in prison in France. It starts, the very first image is the game show. Which one of these men defrauded? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's then, that yeah. Lie to me or something yeah. like that. It's like a game, 60s game show and they're showing three men. That was an interesting... It was a weird way to start it because they yeah. never go back to it. It, and it felt was... a little strange. Yeah, but then you're right. Yeah, so they, they start kind of start at the end. So they start with him in French prison. In Perpignan, I believe Perpignan, it's yeah. Um, which, that's probably one of the most, I mean, it's the most horrible bit of the book. They tone this down for the movie. Oh, man, they tone it down so much. But um, I think they should have just taken that first scene off and just started with this. The game show. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, uh, it didn't just have any purpose, I don't yeah, think, other than weird. to be a kind of a weird framing To device. kind of just say the guy's name before you start it. But... It felt a little bit like Spielberg trying too hard to do something cool. Yeah, it was weird. <laughs> but yeah, so he's in this French prison and they show Hanratty going to his cell and the French officers are like, you can't pass anything to him, you can't touch him. Uh, just look through this little grate in the door. Yeah. And he looks through and... Um, Leonardo DiCaprio is dying. <laughs> yeah, he's basically like really sick. But of course he's a con man. So Carl's like, come on, I know you're faking. I know you just want me to open the door because you want to escape. Like... And he collapses. And then he collapses. So then, and this is, this scene's so effective because it immediately sets off how compassionate the FBI agent is. Yep. So even though, because you're about to see all the runaround this kid has given him. And then when you think about this scene later, you're like, but he still, when the, when Leonardo DiCaprio's character falls to the ground and he's, he thinks he's really ill, he still gets them to open the door. And then, so what happens is they take him to the hospital wing and as soon as they all step away from his bed, he's out the door. <laughs> yeah, and then we get the opening credits. Yeah. Which, can I say, I love these credits. Like yeah, the design they're so of good, them, yeah. And the, the, that whole music of the... Yeah. It's just like, and it's so... You don't see movie credits like this anymore? Yeah, it really makes it feel like a 60s movie. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's so effective as well. It really grounds you in the time period that you're about to enter. And it stuck with me really hard. Like, yeah. Uh, it's not often you think, man, I like those opening credits. Yeah, this, this movie, like, stylistically is just everything looks and feels realistically 60s which i know is a weird thing to say because i wasn't alive in the 60s so how do i know but it just does yeah uh and then we return to the past to how frank abagnale jr got started so we open up like a couple scenes with his like his family and you know what his life was like when he was younger uh he idolizes his dad who um you know there's a scene of him like getting Getting some kind of award. Yeah. I think his, it's probably like a Rotary for, Club or yeah, something. Yeah, that's what something I assume. Like that. Yeah, for stationary like sales and yeah. stuff like that. But he's a well-respected, like not a not a politician, but like the like one step removed from yeah. that. Like very re- well-respected member of the local community. Yeah, and he's shown, their family's shown to have a bit of money as well behind yeah, them. Yeah, they've got a big, big house yeah. in the suburbs. And then like, like you already mentioned as well, so there's these scenes of, of his dad, you know, having to try and grab more money so his dad's being um investigated for tax fraud you find out yeah and so his dad's trying to get more money from here there and everywhere so he yeah takes um frank to buy get a suit um and tricks the shop girl into letting them in even though they're not open yet or kind of convinces her to let them in and then gets frank to drive him to the bank as if he's a chauffeur as if he's a chauffeur and to ask the bank for more money or ask no, it's a new bank. So he's um he's trying to con like a new bank Chase and giving Manhattan him money, bank, which yeah. is one of the banks that Frank Abagnale Jr. actually yeah. started conning yeah. in the early parts of his career. Yeah. So um you know shown to be slightly dishonest and obviously tax fraud is fraud. Before this, you know, you're told the love story of um Frank Senior and uh what's Frank. the mother's name? Frank female. Frank female. I can't remember. I want to say like. Marion or something. She's yeah. French. Yeah. He fell in love with her when he saw her and he said, I'm going to marry that girl and take her back to America. Which he did. And he did. And it's like supposed to be romantic. It's kind of a bit skeezy, but... And then she skeezes out on him by cheating on him because they have no money. Yeah, in. so it's basically she's shown to be like, as soon as they, he doesn't have money, she's like, goes to one of his rich friends and has an affair with him and then divorces him and then goes and marries that guy. Yeah, so there's a, there's a scene early on as well of... Frank impersonating a substitute teacher. Oh, this is great. And he does this, this for a full week or so? A full week, yeah. It's great. Oh, so I actually like this as an inclusion. So this isn't from the book. This is yeah. purely film. Uh, but it does serve as a kind of a little stepping stone yeah. that kind of replaces those, like, tire cons from the book, say. When I was watching the movie and I just read the book, I thought, oh, this is a good way of doing the first con because the credit card fraud with the... Um, mobile card would have been way too hard to explain in film and not exciting either. not exciting but like this little quick little con where he just pretended i mean he does not getting anything out of it apart from he well, he gets to get back at a bully he gets to get back at a bully but he's not getting like money out of it even when he's waiting like his parents are called in and the principal's explaining like he's been pretending to be a teacher for a week he's waiting to you know go home with his parents there's a girl standing at the front desk with a fake uh, sick with a note. fake sick note that she can go home for the last two periods and he he turns to her and he says oh you need to fold that and she says what do you mean and he says well if it was a real note you would have when your mum gave it to you you would have folded it and put it in your pocket and she surreptitiously folds it these he, little this is what's so genius about Spielberg movies is these little touches 
of characterization, just little throwaway moments. Well, I think this one shows how intelligent he is. Like, yeah. he thinks of these tiny little things that allow him to get away with stuff that would get other people caught. Yeah. So, he notices a pilot uh, and the kind of the respect that they get and, and, you know, over the course of his life of hanging around with people with money, kind of understands that that uniform brings you a lot of that respect and, and money that his father is after. So, there's this kind of annoying, stupid scene where... So his parents are finally getting a divorce and basically he gets brought into the room and said, here, just write down on this piece of paper who you want to live with, 16-year-old child. I'm pretty sure even in the 60s, that's not how that worked. I mean, I can't say for sure. I can't say for sure, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> like, that they didn't leave it up to the child. I'm pretty sure the parents had to work it out. So he runs away to New York and then, yeah, sees the pilot uniform and likes the respect that... And, like, admiration that pilots get. And so he calls the uniform officers, like, I've lost my uniform. I think it got stolen. Yeah. Which, and this is from the book. This is yeah. what actually happened. Yeah. And they were happy to send him off to the uniform. He goes and gets one tailored and they charge it to the company. Yeah. So they, he goes, he goes there and he says, oh, I'll just pay cash. Oh, no, I'll pay a check. And the guy says, oh, no, just put your employee number down. But there's six boxes. So he knows he just has to put six numbers in. And he can walk away with the uniform even if those numbers are fake. Yeah, Um, because the guy doesn't have like an immediate computer to check it in on or anything. But he does pick uh, pick up on this that uh, the next thing he needs is an employee number. Yeah. And so, you know, we spend a bit of time with him interviewing Pan Am staff and he's like, asking these questions that these days you would get like put in jail for, you know, if you got caught like asking these sort of security questions, they'd be like, oh. Oh my God, yeah, the hilarious bit where he's... He's pretending to, I mean, he is a high school kid at this point, but he's pretending to be a high school kid interviewing a pilot for the school paper. And he's like, oh, so what, you know, you have to have a pilot's license. What does that look like? And the guy's like, oh, this is what it looks like. And then he says, oh, can I take a copy of this? And the guy goes, oh, that's my old one. You can keep it. Uh, (laughs) I work at the airport and I would die if they did. Oh, my God. So funny. Yeah, this is pretty accurate to the book. Um, like he does things in the book, like sits around in airports in a pilot's uniform so he can have conversations with pilots so he can pick up the kinds of things pilots say to each other. So one of the things is one of them says, what kind of equipment do you drive or do you What, do you, use? what equipment are you on? What equipment are you on? And he doesn't know how to answer, but they just mean what kind of plane are you yeah, um, and he flying? says, like, General Electric says, or something like General in the book. Electric, it's so yeah. funny. The pilot just gives him this, like, glare. The, the, yeah, the pilot thinks he's making fun of him. <laughs> um, and so then he has to go away and, like, figure out what that means and then have a, a ready answer for that. But, so like, this is my favourite thing, right, in the, in the book. Like, this whole sequence of, of him learning the pilot's trade is just fascinating, right? So he, so the, the, the big concept here and how he got so far around the world is this thing called deadheading, which back in the day you could fly in jump seat, which is like a third little subset in the in the cockpit of a, of a Yeah, behind a the pilot. And supposedly this is for uh, pilots to get from one port to another uh, to do a job, to, you know, to start a job from another port. And so this is what he did. He just signed, you know, you'd sign on to deadhead and you, he, you know, fake his way on with his fake ID and his fake license. And he'd, he'd gone through this whole thing of getting, like, he bought Pan Am model planes to get their logo to put on, like, you know, his ID card and everything. It's crazy the detail yeah. that he was aware of for this. Yeah. And so he was able to fly all around the world, and, and mostly the U.S. to start with. So he started off going all over the U.S. He was basically going to new cities once he'd kind of 
hit a city, he hit bank. a city really hard. And so what he was doing with the checks in the cities was um, he figured out something to do with the routing numbers of the checks in America at the time. I don't know if this is still true. I probably, I probably, probably is. There's like twelve reserve banks, and he figured he got one of the cashiers. He flirted his way into getting her to explain it to him. Elizabeth Banks. Yeah. So you know, you'd think the if there was a federal bank somewhere near New York, the check would get routed to that bank, but what also or another bank on the east coast of America. But what he was doing was scrubbing out the number and changing it to a bank on the west coast. It was By the taking, time it gets from there, so it, and back. it would get to that. It would get to that federal bank, federal reserve, and then they would go, "Oh, but this is for a bank in New York," and they'd send it back. By the time it got back to the bank, and then they realized, and the mistake bounced. was realized. He'd this two weeks had gone by, and so he would be gone by then. So he knew he had two weeks in a city, and then he would leave, um, which is just amazing. Like just attention to detail. And it was about this point in time that the FBI started getting this case as well. All these banks then started uh, filling these into the FBI kind of thing. Um, yeah, so he'd then jump into a new city. But it's like everywhere he went, he, you know, he's, he, in the book he says when he was flying behind the pilots, he'd just have a little notebook and any time he heard a new term, he'd write it down. He would memorise this stuff. Yeah. Like, this was not like a, a, a guy who fluked his way onto this stuff. He was smart, real smart. Yeah. For a 16-year-old. Yeah. And um, I mean, his, his figure also allowed him to get away with this as well, like his sort of yeah, size. Yeah, he was really tall and quite broad, um, he said. And so he was, he was mistaken for late 20s a lot, even as a 16-year-old, before he started conning people. So he just used that to his advantage. Yeah. And um, you know, all the all this time he's getting loads of girls, um, loads of attention. Um, the girls not so much in the movie, but like so there's I think they 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 definitely that's not taken away from his character, but there's also a lot of scenes of him sort of family related stuff. Yeah. Him trying to buy like his father a fancy dinner and a car and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, definitely but, the book is like every two pages, like and then I had sex with girls. Yeah. <laughs> like he talks a lot about all the women that he has sex with. But he's not shy about it either. Like, he just admits that that was just, he was... Uh, that was his driving force. Yeah. Yeah. He was 16. I can't think of many 16-year-old boys that that's not their, well, straight 16-year-old boys, that that's not their main interest. Um, it's just that he took it above and beyond. Yep. Now, meanwhile, the movie brings us our first little confrontation between uh, the FBI agent Carl Hanready and, uh, and Frank. So yeah. it's in this hotel that he's been staying at for a while now. Like he's kind of settled down for a couple of weeks, and finally the FBI agent like catches up to him and is in the hotel, and he manages to like bullshit his way out of this uh, by you know pretending that someone this blind guy downstairs is being taken away by his carer yeah, so he's... as the actual con man Frank Abbey now, and he's pretending to be Secret uh, Service Secret Service agent Barry Allen, which is the name of the Flash, who, yeah. and we know that he was a comic book fan. Yeah. So he just bullshits this FBI agent to his face. I really, really like this scene because I can't remember what the context is, but like, oh, just as they're getting to the hotel, I think the two FBI, cause so he's got, Carl Hanratty has like two other FBI agents who've been assigned to him and neither of them wants to be working um, check. For they both got put there. Yeah, they both got put there. One of them's being punished and one of them was bad at his job or something. Yeah. And they're both complaining about, you know, it's hot or something. And he says to them, oh, I'll buy you like a, I'll buy you some kind of ice cream if you just let me go in here. Like he's just, he's just like being rude to them. 
like they're little children. Um, and then after this scene happens, the next scene directly is him in his boss's office with the two goons behind him. And it's just a visual joke. They're both eating ice creams. <laughs> I really, really enjoyed that. It was really funny. It is good. <laughs> I really like as well that they portray Carl as also very intelligent, like the details that he picks up on. Like he's not a, a dumb guy either, you know, like he's a smart agent. And uh, not at first because, you know, he, he doesn't look at the inside the wallet that Frank hands him, which is full of fake cards and stuff that are actually just like cutouts of cardboard boxes and labels and stuff. But I think it shows not that he's not smart, but it shows that he's too trusting. Yeah. And it also shows like how, how con artists do what they do because, you know, obviously he asks, obviously when um, Frank says that he's secret service, he asks for, Carl asks for identification. So Frank hands him a wallet, but then immediately distracts him by pointing out the window to say, that's your man down there. And then he's so distracted by the guy downstairs, he doesn't look in the wallet. Mm. And Frank kind of keeps him talking and, like, keeps him, like, changing topics and flustering him and is so, like, in his face and confident and everything that he he's really confused about what's going on until Frank steps out of the room. And about two seconds after Frank steps out of the room, he goes, hang on a second, and he looks in the wallet and it's just full of coupons. But I think that's good because it just shows that, like, you don't have to be stupid to be conned by a con man. That's what they do. I love the phone call as well that he gets. So uh, Carl works Christmas. Yeah. He's a hard worker. He really wants this guy nailed. And Frank calls him yeah. on Christmas. Like he said, he somehow gets his details and knows, you know, he's, well, you know he clearly knows his, his agent name and that he works for the FBI. So he gets in contact with him on Christmas Day. It's just, but that, that's a mistake because, like, in talking to him, he gives away unwittingly some clues about who he is yeah that help uh that help carl get the lead but it's just like a lovely almost intimate scene because because the reason that frank calls in the movie apparently is that he has no one else because his family is alienated from his family and he can't go back and anything like that i just love the detail like throughout this film it's so well crafted yeah i really like the dynamic between the two of them so the next step for Frank uh, is as he flies. So he continues flying for a while, but then the next step is that he ends up becoming a doctor. Um, yeah, so in he's... places, so he's staying at this like resort sort of place, and one of the people who lives next door to him is kind of like, "Hey, I've got this job." Um, well, he so he checks into this hotel as a doctor. In the book, we kind of miss this bit, but in the in the movie, but in the book, um, he wants to lay low for a while because he knows that. He's being followed. So he checks into this hotel, like, a a way away from a, you know, anyone who'd recognise him near an airport, and and checks in saying he's a doctor there on, like, secondment, basically. Yeah. A paediatrician. A paediatrician. But then it just so happens that another person in the hotel (laughs) is also also a paediatrician. And so he's, like, comes along to be collegial, and Frank's like, crap. And then it turns out that the hospital that this guy's working for... They need a night supervisor. They need, they need a paediatrician, another paediatrician, to be supervising a ward at night. And so he basically ends up taking this position at this hospital. But again, like he... So not it's not just like he does it and he's like, oh, I'll just get away with it on confidence alone. He finds a fake... like He finds what a medical degree would look like and, and prints himself off a fake one from Harvard. And then uh, on top of that... Like he spends so so again the book is fascinating with all the details about this. So he says he, he hated the sight of blood and he like he never actually gave any advice. And the reason he left it, it was that personally he felt so 
responsible for the people there. He was like, it was just became too much. But that he spent all of his spare time reading medical journals in a closet upstairs. Yeah. That's insane. It's just, yeah. it's so wonderfully baffling. Yeah. It's really good. And they do get that kind of idea across in the movie. Um, so, like, basically he's got, he's just the supervising doctor. So he's got a bunch of residents, so sort of junior doctors and um, nurses working for him. So he just, every time he goes into a room with a patient, he just asks the two residents who are there, well, what would you do? And then checks that they both say the same thing. <laughs> And then just goes, okay, we'll do that then. That sounds correct. <laughs> there is a great scene here in the movie where he's... So he doesn't read books to do this, but he watches medical TV shows. Oh, yeah. And he walks in and he goes immediately... He just copies what they said on the TV show. He goes, do you concur? And the doctor's like, with what? <laughs> and he just like bluffs his way. He's like, do you concur? And he's like, yeah, I concur. <laughs> and at the end, you see like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio walking out with this like look on his face. He's like... Oh, I clearly said the wrong thing. Won't say that one again. Yeah, but the junior doctor's behind him going, I should have just concurred. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Yeah, it's really good. And it's here in the hospital that he meets uh, one of the interns, the the brace-faced little interns. Oh, no, Uh, she's uh, a nurse. Nurse, sorry. uh, Brenda Strong. Yeah. Yeah, so he meets Brenda here and and falls in love with her. Yeah, so he actually does fall in love with her and she's estranged from her parents, which... It's not really talked about in the book, but basically he says, oh, I want to marry you and goes back to her parents with her in both. But in the movie, they're basically setting up to get married when it's all revealed. In the book, he kind of has like a moral quandary. He hasn't asked her to marry him yet. And he, he they go for a walk and he says, he tells her his whole story. He tells her, my name's really Frank. I'm a con man, like, but I, I'll stop, I'll stop all of that for you. And they have a kind of argument about it. And then so it gives she, her time to go think about yeah, it. So she goes to think about it. And then he goes back to her house that where she is with her parents. And as he approaches, he sees this cop cars outside. So he books it in the movie. Um, this dovetails with him becoming a lawyer. Yeah. So he gets, um, he goes back to her home with her and, um, reunites her with her parents and her tells her, fa- her yeah her father's a district attorney he says oh i also studied law as well as medicine um i'd love to get back into the law so he he does that for a while and he's there for quite a while doing that and they are getting ready to get married and they have a Bye. engagement party which Carl Hanready turns up to and basically he has to bail frank junior bails out the window after quickly like whispering a few of his secrets to Brenda. And instructions for where to meet him at the airport yeah. in a couple of days. Yeah. And so in a few days later, he goes to the airport and he sees her, but then he realizes that it's a setup because he sees yeah. all these guys, the agents, you know, lurking around. Yeah. So that's almost exactly the same. Yeah. Except for the, with the path for him becoming a lawyer, which is just basically a separate little story in the book. Yeah. Because obviously that relationship didn't exist, but he does, he does still go to, New Orleans, and passes the Louisiana bar. Again, fascinating. Yeah, this is so interesting. And so, I do like the way that the movie handles this as well. This because So we haven't talked about some of the, the flash forwards that keep coming up. There's one of him trying to escape from that... The, the continuation of him trying to escape that custody in the French prison where he's just too sick to get anywhere. So he is sick, yeah. yeah and he's in a hotel room with the agents at one point, And yeah. then 
there's a scene with him on the plane, which is probably closer to the end, but but uh, we'll kind of dovetail with that later. Yeah. Of him and and Carl Henry sitting next to him on the plane, he's like, "How did you pass the Louisiana bar? You just can't get over how this this con artist passed a legal exam with zero study." Yeah. And the solution is because, and this is what we're told in the book at this point, he didn't cheat. He studied. Yeah. And he just learned and learned and learned, and, t- and, he, and he took he failed twice before he could do it. But the, you're allowed three tries. And the third try, he passed. Yeah, and also in the book, the detail that they put in, which is left out in the movie, is um. When the first two times he took it, they sent the test to him with the answers to the uh, to the ones he got wrong, so he knew what to study. <laughs> but um, yeah, this kid who didn't finish high school basically passed. He's still the bar. only like eighteen or nineteen at this point. Yeah, I mean, passing the bar isn't passing law school. No, it's not. It's like passing it's, your knowledge it's and a test. And stuff. Yeah, but like, it's still really, really impressive. Oh, very. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So this is, like, where the two really, really diverge because we get all this stuff about his legal proceedings in the book. No, there's loads of stuff before that. So there's the deal with the flight attendants. Oh, yeah, the flight attendants is really good. And also all the the printing of the checks over in Europe, which is how he gets caught. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I skipped a bunch. (laughs) Yeah, the flight attendants is really good. Do you want to... Yeah, yeah. So so this section here... uh, he basically realizes that he's very vulnerable on his own because not many pilots travel by themselves uh, and that he's it'll be easier to get around hotels and to continue cashing checks and stuff like that if he has his own crew with him. And this is like a bizarre concept to think that, how am I going to fake my fake a crew? And so he goes to a high school. He says, Pan Am are recruiting. Uh, a university. A university and a bunch of like uh, sophomore uh, students. Uh, that you know, Pan Am are recruiting a bunch of not flight attendants, but but basically promo girls who will appear like flight attendants to fly around the world and promote Pan Am uh, with him, and finds the most naive and kind of vulnerable to be conned uh, among them, and takes them with him. Yeah, on around Europe. Yeah, and so th- he's this he's... is actually how he uh, sneaks past the agents who are waiting for him in New Orleans. Yeah, in the movie. Yeah, so that adds a whole extra. Like dimension, um, he doesn't con like the, he cons the girls because he tells them he's taking them to Europe for this photo spree and whatever. But he pays them and they send the money home. It's just stolen money, obviously. And um, he does take them to Europe and he doesn't harm them or anything. So like, although in the book he is very careful to make sure that he points out he did have sex with most of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, they are unwitting victims of his crime. But, yeah, they're not being hurt no. by it. <laughs> <laughs> Again, just a, just an insane plan that I cannot believe worked. Yeah, so, so it's stuff like he has to tell them when they're on planes, they don't wear their flight attendant uniforms because the other flight attendants will get jealous of the opportunity that they've had and just stuff like that. It's like there's so many opportunities for something to go wrong and yet he still manages to get away with it. Unbelievable. Uh, Frank then, obviously heading around Europe for a bit, again tries to decide. Basically, he says, I'm, I'm close to done. And um, he's got this thing where he's printing uh, checks from this place in, in France. This guy is printing exactly the way he wants them. Um, it's, it's the father of uh, a flight attendant who he knew from Air France. Yeah. So basically at this point, he's found a person who prints checks. And he's printing real checks. So the 
Con is not getting the checks past the cashiers because the checks are real, which is insane amount of attention to detail. Yeah. He does settle down into into France, into the town where his mother was from. And this is kind of where the movie picks up as well, uh, but slightly differently. Yeah. He's just like, he's just, what, what's he doing here in the movie? I can't even remember. He just, like, he just kind of rocks up with this printing press. It's not really explained. It's just where Hanratty catches him. He knows that he'll be in that town. Yeah. But in the in the movie, yeah, so he's he's said, no more, I'm not doing it anymore, so I'm going to move to this town. It's nowhere near an airport, so no one's going to be like, that's a pilot or that's this guy. Yeah. But unfortunately, a flight attendant who he knew does go to that town or or maybe in may I think it might even be a major town nearby that he goes to a shopping in. Yeah. yeah. They recognise him anyway and by this time he is he is known to be a con artist by the oh, flight. Worldwide. Yeah, worldwide. So this person reports him and says I saw him here and basically the French police find him yeah. and arrest him. There's a very dramatic scene here in the movie of Carl confronting him and he's kind of like lost the plot has has Frank. Yeah. Uh, as he chases him around. But again, Frank, like, Carl never lies to him. He's, he's like, if you come with me, I'll, you know, if the French police arrest you, it's a different story than if I take you out there now. Yeah. Because if you run out and they catch you, it's they'll do their own thing. Yeah. And they, this is how he gets taken to Perpignan prison, which is where we opened up the movie. Yeah. And in the book, this is the first time we introduced to Perpignan. And my... God, if half the stuff in here was true, it would still be the worst prison on earth. Yeah. It's a hole. There's no food. He sleeps in his own shit. Yeah. There's no latrine. There's a bucket, but it doesn't get emptied. Um, they give him, the, there's the no guards light. torture him like, by giving him a mattress and then ripping it out from under him. Yeah. There's no light. There's the, mm. uh, there's like. Irregular meal oh, times. He's, he's naked. There's no, he has no, he has no clothes on. The hole is not. The, like, standing height, so he has to crouch the whole time if he wants to stand up. Yeah. They feed him at off time, so he can never tell what time what of day time it is. What time of day it is. It's it's really difficult to read about, but, like, really interesting. Mm. Basically, it, it talks about how in France at the time, they didn't believe in, like, rehabilitation. They just believed in punishment, like an eye for an eye. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll we'll kind of catch up with the movie again later because we've already covered most of the rest of what the movie does with him being on that flight back to the United States after being extradited. In the book, we take a stopover in Sweden. Yes. So he's extradited from France to Sweden after he reckons he was in the Perpignan about six months, and two Swedish, you know, agents, whatever their equivalent of the FBI is, come and take him because he's also committed plenty of fraud over there. Yeah, so basically every European country wants him. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's an ordered list of where he will go next if he were to, to serve all of his terms concurrently. Yeah. And <laughs> I love this bit in the book because apparently he just basically stays in a Swedish hotel for all effect. Yeah, it's so interesting. I like, I think, that, you know, this would be why... It's this... very Scandinavian. Yeah. Um, this is so interesting because you have the, the French prison and then you have the... Scandinavian prison and like they take him to like even on the plane like they don't even put him in handcuffs they're just like don't run away they're just like don't run away we'll shoot you they buy him like a magazine and like some lollies and like he gets a meal on the plane which he I think he throws up because he, oh, yeah. he doesn't eat him properly in like months yeah he weighs like half of what he did yeah going in. and then they get to Sweden and they take him to like the jailhouse and it's like a hotel room 
Then the prison he ends up in for a year. Six it? months, I Six think. Six months, yeah. In Malmo. Is like just an open facility on a university campus. And um, he said he took some classes. Yeah, he can take classes. You've got to work for a little bit. Yeah. Um, one of the people who he like conned comes to see him and is like, I don't have any hard feelings about what you did. I hope that you've learned your lesson. Uh, so, and, and then eventually after this, he's, you know, he's extradited back towards the US. They do, there is a, a big struggle, like a bit of a power struggle here to get him sent here instead of... Italy. Yeah, Italy would be next. So and they'd he, probably be not as, quite as bad as France, but pretty no, she close. she said worse. Did she? Yeah. Oh. So he finds out that Italy is going to get him next. And then one of the one of the Swedish FBI agents or whatever they're called is like, you don't want to go there. And so he starts writing letters to the judge who sentenced him. Yeah. And basically, the Swedish judge. The Swedish judge, and that guy shows so much compassion towards him. He, the day before he's meant to be, or the I think that night before yeah, he's meant to be sent he to puts Italy, him on a he he revokes his passport. Yeah. So he's there. He's in Sweden illegally. So therefore, should be um, sent back to his home country, and America doesn't extradite. Yeah, just such an amazing, kind, and compassionate thing to do for someone. So Scandinavian. It's just it. so <laughs> like amazing. Only Canada would do that as well. Yeah, it's just so amazing and like. But he does talk about in the book, like he's like how he'll never forget what that guy did for mm. him because he knows that if was, what he was hearing about the Italian prison was true, and like you know he was only he was sentenced to a year in um, Perpignan, and he he only quote unquote served six months, but he was told that like. Italian jail sentence would be like 20 years yeah. and if he had to be in that kind of thing for that long he would come out and he would not be a person anymore no. uh, so it's here that we catch back up with the movie and they uh, intertwine again on the plane back to the US about probably about half an hour before this he's due to land Frank jumps into the latrine uh, into the toilet and unscrews the head and like slips into the compartment below and is basically clinging onto landing gear and jumps off on the tarmac and runs away. Yeah. What? That's yeah. insane. Like, I work at an airport, and, like, the, the the fact that you could... Like, I know it's possible, obviously, but, like, it's just unfathomable how much determination you have to not be caught. So he does this, and he, uh, he buggers off yeah. for a bit. Suffice to say, in the book, eventually he's caught. So he, the... he goes up to um, Canada in the book, and a Mountie taps him on the shoulder when yeah. he's in the airport there. Because people know his face by now. Yeah, and a Mountie's like... You need to come with me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he gets taken back to America. Yeah. And uh, that's basically where, pretty much where the book ends insofar as, like, the, the book itself just ends there. Yeah. Um, as he's in custody. Yeah. Uh, the movie continues on and tells the story of what happened afterwards, which is true. It's it's all in the, like, the... There's an interview with him in the back of the book. I don't yeah. know if you got that one as well. Uh, no, I didn't read that. Oh, okay. It basically It tells, may have been there, but I didn't read it. Okay. It just tells the story of what happened to him in his life afterwards. Yeah. Um, and the movie here, so it, as he's running away from the airport, he actually goes back to... His mother's house. Yeah, his mother's house and sees his young stepsister and, and she's now living there with the guy that she was cheating with. This is in the movie. Yeah. and All he, his cop cars pull up. Yeah, I, I think... But the thing is, I think in the movie he kind of knows he just wanted to see them. I don't think he's actually interested in running away. Yeah, to, there's kind of a resigned look yeah, on his face, yeah. Because he immediately puts his hands up and all that and yeah. stuff. And he is taken into custody, and and then we kind of enter this very like final act sort of thing, uh, which is mostly about his rehabilitation. So uh, Carl visits him in prison, 
and and you know one day as he's telling the story of this and he, you know he's brought some of his work with him uh, he shows Frank this check and Frank tells him how he knows it's a fake and and what about it and it was something that Carl hadn't noticed so he says oh that was um that's, the that's an inside type. job that's a teller doing that yeah. because a teller does this with the checks yeah when they get them so he's taking a check he's given and he's changing something on it yeah. so the money goes to him yeah and so he basically helps him with the case so then Carl, Carl, who really has a fondness for him. Yeah, and and you can completely understand, especially in the movie, um, watching it from a, like a third-person perspective, you can completely understand that why this figure would be like, let's rehabilitate this boy who's twenty, only 21, and there's almost like a father bo- father-son oh, bond I was about there. To, I'm yeah. about to bring this up because that, you know, we've not mentioned, but... Uh, we learn that his, you know, he's going through divorce proceedings as well, and that you know his he can't see his daughter anymore. And there's this whole arc, you know, of, of this is a father son bond waiting to happen, sort of. Yeah. Thing. So you can just really see why this would have formed, and it's yeah. true. Like he does have a close bond. Yeah, he said they remain close friends their whole to life to this day. Yeah. yeah. Um, I well, think, to this day, sixteen years ago. <laughs> well, yeah, I think uh, I, I read somewhere that the agent had died, but. Uh, uh, Frank is uh, still working for the FBI, so Carl brings him on as an FBI like agent, as a young working in the check fraud department. Yeah, so they um they basically say you can um serve, you serve your time in jail. So yeah, serve your time in jail, or you can serve at working for the FBI, and like we'll keep tabs on you. But basically, you'd be free to move around the city. Yeah, have a have an apartment. We'd pay you. Yeah, if you run away, you'll never you'll you'll never be free again. Yeah, but. And you have to do what we tell you and you have to turn up for work, but like you wouldn't be in prison Yeah. and we could use your help. And so he chooses that. And so, so real life, like Frank, Frank Avenel Jr. then ended up working. He, he's still like consulting for the FBI. He's got his own company. He, he invented technology to help prevent check fraud. Like he's, he's the world's foremost expert on it. Like he's got an amazing life, like as a, as a productive. He's done a lot of consulting in Australia, apparently. Yeah. With uh, ASIO. Yeah, like I'd... security firms, banks, yeah. all sorts of stuff, all across the world. Yeah, there's this scene here in the movie, this final scene where, uh, uh, you know, coming in day after day to work, and and it probably doesn't feel like he gets a whole lot of acknowledgement or, or notice from any of the other people in the office, does Frank? But he kind of feels this, he misses the thrill of the chase. Yeah, and also, um, and he sees a pilot's uniform in a window as he's walking down the street. Yeah, he's used to the high life. He's shop, used to living yeah. in hotels and having lots of money. And yeah. I expect the FBI is not paying him a huge amount. No, and... well, especially because it would be like a subsidized prison salary or whatever. Yeah, you know, he he buys this pilot's uniform and he begins like walking. You see, there's this scene of him walking down like an airport terminal, like departures uh, walkway. And Carl's walking behind him. You know, it was at a certain point, you know, he knew he was going to be there. And and there's this dialogue between them. It's just really sweet kind of sort of stuff. He's like, um, you don't, you know, you don't need to run away. And I, you know, you can keep going as far as you want, but look behind you. It's just the two of them in this thing. He's like, no one's chasing you. You'll come back. And he leaves him. And there's this like this awkward moment at work the next day where he's where he's yeah, waiting like, for. It's him. like ten a.m. and he still when hasn't just turned the time up. He's supposed to start. Yeah. No, I think he's supposed to start at nine, yeah. and it's like an hour later, and Carl's like, crap. <laughs> um, and like at ten oh two, Frank walks in yeah. and starts helping him out on the the thing. That's yeah. a really sweet ending to the yeah. film. It is. It is really good. And that's the end. That's the end. This is a fascinating story. Like I'm so glad I ended up reading this because like, it's just such an incredible story. I don't think I've ever read a more like 
unlikely story. Yeah. I've been recommending it to people all week since I finished it. Well, Lois, like, would you like to recommend Catch Me If You Can to our listeners? Yes, both of them. Thumbs up for both. The book is so easy to read and the movie's great. Great acting, great music. Um, it's funny. It's just not the book. Yeah, I agree. I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend both quite handily. Uh, they're they're different texts, I think. Basically, one of them is you know an autobiography or, or a semi autobiography. You know, telling the story, trying to recount events and and stuff as they happen, and particulars about how and when and what. And the movie is trying to tell a character story to some to some extent. You know, with interesting stuff happening in the background and this mm-hmm. kind of dueling uh, rivalry between Frank and and Carl. Uh, but both are equally good in their own right, and I would highly recommend you uh, read the book and you watch the film. Very quickly, anything you're into outside of Catch Me If You Can, Lois? I just finished rewatching The Office, nine seasons of The Office. I got like seven and a half seasons in, maybe maybe six. In the yeah, episode. the last couple of seasons aren't great. Okay. Basically after, what's the actor's name? The guy from The Things. Steve Carell. Steve Carell. Basically after Steve Carell leaves, it's just never the same. Lois, my hand is raised because Steve Carell is my least favourite part of The Office. Because he gives you secondhand embarrassment? That, I I think he's a jerk. I hate him as a protagonist. Yeah, but I think without that character, none of the other characters... That's quite possible. ...are like, um, there's a void. But yeah, I think it's a good show in some ways. There's There's some jokes in it that I'm like, wow, um, I can't believe this was on network television. But I'm glad that I finished watching it because I was a bit like you. I'd, like, watched most of it. I am... Look, I'm not really doing anything new. It's all stuff I've done before. But, man, just go watch the Infinity War trailer. You want to see Avengers Infinity War? A little bit, Next time, we are doing Year in Review. We've been going actually more than two years now because we've missed some weeks. We decided to go... Per, two per number of eps as opposed um, to sticking one it's in. It's reasonably close. We're like maybe a month off. Yeah, I think we're about a month out. Yeah, so we decided to go every 26 eps, basically do a year in review. So we'll be talking about the last year and what we liked and didn't like, do some superlatives, that kind of thing. Yeah, so for those of you who've not joined, we kind of do our favourites and least favourites and what we thought were the best adaptations out of all the 25 or so texts we've done in yep. the past year. You can find and contact us at wereadthebook at gmail.com and on Twitter at readthebookpod. You can also join our Facebook group, which is We Read the Book Discussion Group. We put up our question of the week in there. Um, People had some really hilarious answers to our last one for the Star Wars one. It's a good time. Uh, And, of course, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher for Android and uh, whatever you're podcasting thing of choices maybe just those two i don't know yeah we're not on spotify that's the only one we're not on good we don't want to be on spotify okay and that way our download will appear fortnightly we do apologize for the lateness of this week's episode as we mentioned i was unwell last week and unable to record but we'll go back to correct week next week so So there's a new episode next week yeah so next Next week uh, we'd like to thank the Dada Weatherman for the use of their theme song, for the use of our theme song, The Human Light. Yeah. That'll do it for us this time. We'll see you again in one week for our year interview. For now, I've been FBI agent Adam Heap. And I am also Adam Heap. <gasps> Who's the real one? You'll never know. Dun, dun, dun. It's finally relevant. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye. Fighting for your fire.
Like watching Christopher Walken, Christopher Walken around. Yep. <laughs> Christopher Walken around. He's walking here. He's walking. <laughs>